Uh, Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Genesis chapter 29. Uh, We're back to to Genesis between now and uh, Palm Sunday. We're going to be continuing our study that will go uh, through uh, probably early June. We'll uh, we'll wrap up in Genesis, but we're getting into the thick of it now. Uh, And in just a minute, we're going to look at uh, Genesis 29 verses 13 through 30. But before we jump into that text... um, we have been, uh, I was out of town last week and really appreciated Tim's sermon, uh, but, but in weeks prior to that, we've been looking at Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, uh, Abraham, the man of faith, that, that faith giant in the Old Testament uh, that Paul keeps coming back to and referring to in the New Testament as the one who lived by faith. We're now looking at the life of his grandson. And several of you, as you have looked at and listened to uh, the, not only the sermons, but read the passages and and really kind of looked carefully at Jacob's life have said something like this to me. How could God possibly have chosen a guy like this to be part of his covenant promise? How how could this be somebody through whom uh, the promise of salvation is going to flow? flow? As we look at Jacob's life, he's really a scoundrel. (laughs) He's really a no good rotten guy. You wouldn't want Jacob to be your next door neighbor. Uh, and how can how can he be part of the child of the promise? I, Abraham, we understand. Isaac, we understand. But Jacob, boy, he's a liar. He's a cheat. He had no love for his family. He swindled his brother out of millions. He had he had no real trust in God. Even when God appeared to him, uh, and we looked at that a few weeks ago, the the ladder, you know, the ladder that descended down from heaven to earth, that's been called you know Jacob's ladder when it was really God's ladder. But uh, God was demonstrating to Jacob. Jacob, this uh, shows that I'm involved in your life. This is a picture of, of you understanding that, that you're not out there by yourself. And then the message that God speaks directly to Jacob, I'm not going to put it on the screen, uh, but God says to him, I'll never leave you. Uh, I'll, ne- I'll give to you what I've promised you. Uh, you will come back to this land. You and your offspring shall inhabit it. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He gets this incredible promise. And what is his response? Well, his response, and we've studied it before, but again, just to, re- to refresh your memory, his response was this. Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. <laughs> then the Lord shall be my God. You say, Jacob, h- how can you have no faith? That's not a statement of faith. That's a statement of no faith. Then if all this works out, I'll be with him. And so some of you say, you know, Tom, I'm a little bit bothered by this. I'm a little bit bothered by by Jacob. And I'm kind of there with you. He's kind of an offensive guy. It's a bit of an insult to our propriety. How could one like this be part of the child of the promise? Well, I want to remind you this morning that God is patient, that God's timing is not your timing. God's timing is not my timing. In fact, most often, I'm so far off in what God's doing and how he's doing it. As, uh, Steve Brown, who's one of my heroes of, of preachers, says, don't ask me what God's doing today. Ask me what he was doing five years ago, and maybe I figured that part of it out. Um, but we need to remember that God is patient. And isn't that a good thing? I mean, if God wasn't patient with you, if God wasn't patient with me, think about where we would be. And so, yes, Jacob's kind of a rotten guy, but remember God's patience. But also remember that God is active. He's not sitting around twiddling his thumbs. He's not busy looking somewhere else and ignoring Jacob. He's not rocking on the front porch, ignorant of what's going on in Jacob's life. Remember the picture of the ladder. 
The angels are descending and ascending to heaven. They are busy doing God's providential will. And the ladder, the visual of that ladder reminds us that God is active and his plan will not miss the mark. So if you've been a little bit frustrated with this character named Jacob, you might be encouraged to note this morning as we look at this passage, we're going to see that Jacob is about to enter God's school of hard knocks. It's time now in God's providence that he's going to begin trimming off some of the rough edges of Jacob's pride, of his unbelief, his self-reliance, and this lying spirit, this conniving spirit that keeps coming up over and over and over again. God's promise to be with Jacob is true, and he's, beginning, he's going to show it in a way that may surprise us a bit this morning. So with that in mind, Genesis 29, verses 13 through 30. Hear the word of God. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, told him about his life and about his journey. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And Laban said to Jacob, this is at the end of the month, Laban says, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, that's the part in the reading where you're supposed to go, oh, in that sweet se- uh, seven years, he was so in love. Let's try that. Oh, isn't that sweet? Some wives are kind of elbowing their, their husbands right now. Let's, let's, let's move this right along. Sorry to slow us down. Uh, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. They've done this seven year thing. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban also gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect and this morning PG-13 word. (laughs) To, To him alone be glory forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the interesting characters in your scripture. Father, this is uh, more of a soap opera than it seems like a passage of scripture this morning. There, There are some shady characters here and some funny business going on. 
But Father, it is part of your word because you deal with real folks. You don't deal with just perfect people. You don't just deal with folks who think they've got their act together and behave properly and always say and do the right thing and, and mind their manners. You deal with people who are liars, cheaters. You deal with swindlers. You, your love extends to people who are filled with anger and lust and greed. You are a patient and an act of God. And your desire this morning is for us not to look at these folks with a condemning eye, but rather to understand that there's an important, there's a crucial spiritual lesson here for us. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know. Come and be our teacher. Help us understand your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, Jacob has arrived at Haran. Haran is his mother's hometown. It's, it's where uh, Rebecca came from. Uh, and he meets his uncle Laban. And they have this encounter, which uh, we've just read. And they're going to continue to have a relationship for the next couple of chapters. We're going to hang out with Jacob and uh, his uncle Laban for the next week or two. Uh, but we see in this introductory um, encounter with them, Uh, some real shenanigans going on. Uh, I'm going to give you six observations about this text, and I'll try to move through it relatively uh, in in a good pace so as not to slow us down too much. Uh, But at the end, I'm going to give you one application. I really think there's one main truth that we need to take away from this passage this morning as we look at at, uh, these two fellows, Jacob and Laban. And I'm going to give a title on each slide. The first uh, title on the first slide is The Deal. Let's look at this business transaction that's taken place. Jacob's been around the camp about a month. And Laban's been kind of watching Jacob. He's his nephew. He's kind of seeing how he acts, how he interacts with folks. And he's been visiting for a while. But, you know, kind of that part of it is wearing off. And so Laban says to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, because we're, you know, relatives, should you not therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I'll serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man Stay with me. So here's the deal. Now, before your 21st century senses get offended that these two men are making a deal for a woman over here who has absolutely nothing to say about this, you got to put on your 21st, or you got to put on your ancient hat and kind of take off your 21st century hat. This is how marriages were arranged in that day. There's nothing odd going on here. There's nothing that that uh, either or Leah or Rachel would have said. Well, that, that's weird. That, that offends me that dad would try to work out some kind of deal and, and marry me off to some man. That's how their custom uh, worked. So the deal is not something that, that should offend you as if it were something that were happening, you know, here in Kirkwood, Missouri, uh, in, in our day and age. It was a different time in a different society. But you need to understand that Laban is not being magnanimous here. He kind of looks like he is. Laban says, gee, Jacob, you, you can't work for me for free. Well, who said anything about work? Who said anything about service? Laban brings it up. Jacob doesn't offer his service. Jake, uh, Laban is kind of going between the lines and say, you know, Jacob, isn't it time you kind of get off my sofa and stop eating my food and stop kind of eyeballing my daughter, Rachel? Maybe you ought to do something. Maybe you ought to make something out of your life. And, and, and Laban is kind of pushing on Jacob's pride as a man. He's kind of pushing on that integrity, saying, you know, Jacob, you're going to do something? Now, I don't expect you to work for free, of course. I would never be such a man that would expect that. But you see kind of the knife kind of being twisted just a little bit into Jacob. The other thing Laban understands is that 
His sister uh, is Rebecca, and he remembers the day that Isaac's servant showed up looking for a wife for Isaac. And he came loaded down with gold and with silver and with jewelry and with fine linens and expensive clothing. And when the deal was struck, when the dowry was made... Laban himself, if you go back and you read in earlier chapters of Genesis, he got some of that gold. He got some of that silver. He got some of those nice clothes as a gift. So he knows that Jacob comes from a wealthy family, and here he is showing up on his doorstep empty-handed. And you know what Laban's thinking is, what's going on here? I know Jacob's family's wealthy, and is he coming looking for a bride as well, and he comes with nothing? I'm not going to get taken advantage of. And so Laban jumps out ahead of Jacob, and he strikes a deal. He's looking out for his own interest. Laban sees his interest in Rachel, and he's protecting his interest. Okay, if you want Rachel, then we got to work out a deal. Now, dads understand this. Dads who have daughters especially understand this. They want to make sure that their daughters are okay, that they're protected, that anybody that might fall in love with them would really treat them well. I remember the first uh, prom dance that Katie went to just by sheer coincidence, I was sitting on the front porch cleaning our shotgun when the boy showed up. <laughs> to t- strangest thing. I don't know how that worked out that day. You know, his eyes got kind of big, and I just smiled and said, okay, you get the picture. You know, any, you heard her, then, the, you know, the same goes around. I didn't have to say that, but, you know, dads understand, hey, wait a minute now. You're not just going to kind of run off with my little girl here. And so Laban puts the seed in Jacob's mind to strike this deal. What are you going to do? And Jacob says, you know what? Seven years. I'll work for your daughter. Seven years. I'm so in love with Rachel. And Laban says, good. I don't want to give her to a stranger. anyway. I'd rather she's with you. Great. We've got a deal. But there's a glitch. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Odd that the author of Genesis, who happens to be Moses comes up with this observation at this point in the text. He tells us two things. One is that there are two daughters, not one. And he gives us the birth order. Leah's the older, Rachel's the younger. And he also tells us a little something about each one. Uh, Leah has uh, uh, weak eyes. And that's, in the Hebrew, literally, it it means uh, that her eyes were soft. In other words, not, not sparkling, not full of life. It's a polite way of saying that she was uh, striking neither in personality nor in appearance. She was, she was somewhat of, of a homely type of, of looking and, and behaving person, but that was the extreme opposite of Rachel. Rachel was vivacious. Rachel had sparkling eyes. She was uh, a joy to everyone around her. She stood out in a crowd, and she's also the younger daughter. Now, if you see this in the middle of this deal transaction, you got to ask the question, why did Moses put that in there? Why does he bother to even introduce Leah if Jacob is simply working for Rachel? And I would say it's because the author wants us to know that there's something important that's, that's going to happen because of their age and because of their appearance and because of their personalities, and it isn't going to be good. In other words, the, the author of, of Genesis here is saying, folks, heads up, because trouble is a brewing. <laughs> This is not going to go well. It's not going to end well. I remember uh, my senior year of high school, I had my wisdom teeth taken out. And um, in those days, you actually went to the hospital and stayed overnight. 
and they, they, uh, and they took your wisdom teeth out. And so I went to the hospital and stayed overnight. Well, it was late in my senior year, and I wasn't the most honorable guy at that particular point in my life. And so I was dating Cindy, who my wonderful wife that I'm married to now. Uh, but she was getting ready to move to Colorado for the summer, and the school year was coming to a close. And I was working at McDonald's in De Pere, and there was this kind of cute girl in De Pere, and I was kind of talking to her a little bit at the McDonald's. And I might have maybe mentioned to her that Cindy was moving away, and after Cindy moved away, maybe we could spend a little more time together. And didn't mention that part to Cindy, just told her how sad I was that she was going to move away. And, uh, and, and so I come to out of my anesthesia from my uh, wisdom teeth deal. And I open my eyes, I look, I go, and there's Cindy. Oh, you came to visit me. I look over there, and there's the girl from McDonald's. I said, I think I'll just close my eyes and go back to sleep. <laughs> this can't be good. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> and I was a real jerk. But there's a glitch coming, folks. And it is like, hey, there's a speed bump ahead. There's, there's two daughters here, not one. One's beautiful, one's not. Dad loves both of them. What's going to happen? Not only that, not only does that kind of make the situation a little dicey, but look at verse 20 and the blinds, what I'm calling my third observation, the blind side. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That's where I said, you know, this is where you say, oh, isn't that sweet? Jacob is as blind as a bat. He doesn't see anything else around him. Jacob, the astute businessman, the guy who's always looking out for his own interest, the guy who doesn't mind lying and cheating to get ahead, who's not going to let you get the better of him, has no clue what's going on around him. He is in love. I, uh, I vaguely remembered this song by Art Garfunkel. This is years ago, and I went and, and Googled it and found it this week. Listen, it's not very long. Listen to these words. This is Jacob. My love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. Are there stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright. I only have eyes for you, dear. The moon may be high, but I can't see a thing in the sky because I only have eyes for you. Anybody get nauseous yet? You want me to stop or... <laughs> There's the, there's, I know there's at least one engaged couple in here this morning. Tim, I'm singing your song this morning, buddy. This is, this is your song. I don't know if we're in a garden or on a crowded avenue. You are here and so am I. Maybe millions of people go by, but they all disappear from view. And I only have eyes for you. Oh, my gosh, Art Garfunkel, you're killing me. <laughs> this is Jacob, the one-time conniver, shrewd businessman who simply doesn't know what's going on around him. One of the reasons I, I can tell you that for certain is because uh, a couple verses ago, he promised to work seven years for Rachel. That was not an unusual thing for a man to do who didn't have money in his pocket. He didn't come with, you know, his sack of gold to say, hey, let's make a deal. So work was an exchange for, uh, was a commodity to be exchanged. But you know what the going rate was for even the best of wives? Three, four years at the max. Jacob says seven years and you're going, Jacob, you just made the worst deal in the history of the world. What are you thinking? Where's your mind? And Laban's got to be going, I know where his mind is. He's not thinking clearly at all. He's looking in those beautiful eyes of my daughter, and he's totally lost. I'm going to take advantage of it. Seven years, you got a deal. <laughs> Jacob is smitten. Laban knows it. Not a good combination for Jacob. But let me ask you a question. Does this sound at all vaguely familiar to another time in Jacob's life? where there was another experience where somebody had lost sight of reality. Remember his brother Esau coming in from the field? He said, I'm starving to death. And Jacob had what? A big pot of stew. And Esau only had eyes for the pot of stew, okay? And what does Jacob say? Sell me your birthright and you can have the whole pot. 
And Esau, the fool, says, are you out of your mind? If I die, what good is a birthright to me? Just give me the stew. And at that moment, Jacob shows his true colors. He says, you swear to me now that the birthright is mine, and and you're going to have this pot of stew. And Esau foolishly gives in. All of a sudden, the shoe's on the other foot. Same experience. But now Jacob perhaps is going to be on the receiving end instead of on the giving end. He's blinded to his circumstances, which leads to cheating a cheat, which is my uh, fourth observation. Laban said, uh, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is complete. So this is seven years later. Laban gathered together all the people in the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. This, uh, this phrase that Jacob used, give her to me or give me my wife is not a polite way to say it. Normally you would say, please, or uh, uncle Laban, you know, the time is about over. And so we ought to get ready for the exchange. This language uh, seems to indicate that Laban had missed the deadline. Now, maybe it was a few days, probably wasn't more than a couple of weeks, but Jacob is getting agitated. He's saying, wait a minute, it's been seven years, and I guarantee you, Jacob knew to the day when seven years were that he was going to marry Rachel. And Laban somehow has missed the deadline, and so Jacob demands as if he's been wronged. Uh, George Wenham, who's, a, who's a, a great theologian, said this, this is the language of grievance. Jacob is coming saying, you're doing me wrong, buddy. I've, I've, I've worked my seven years. Now let's make the deal. My question is this. Do you think Laban's purposeful in his slowness? I guarantee you Laban knew it to the day as well. You think maybe Laban has something up his sleeve? Does it serve Laban's purposes for Jacob to be agitated, for Jacob to be frustrated, for Jacob to be upset? Do you think perhaps Laban's trying to get Jacob off his game, so to speak, and work the situation to his advantage? It's clear by Laban's activity already that he is no fool. I think that Jacob is about to learn how a real deceiver works. Jacob maybe has prided himself at being able to work a deal, at being able to swindle somebody out of something, to look out for himself but not care for others. But he's about to, he's about to play with the big boys. <laughs> he's going from AAA to Major League Baseball in the middle of the season when the pitchers are at their best. And he's got to try to, to run with the big dogs, so to speak. He's about to learn a very, very difficult lesson. I believe that Laban's dragging his feet was very purposeful. But then Jacob makes this complaint. And so Laban says, oh, I'm so sorry. Let's have a party. Let's get everyone together. Nephew, I should have been on my toes here. Let's celebrate it. So now we have Jacob who's been agitated and angry, but now he's invited to a party. Now, what do you do at a party, especially at a party in these days, which lasted for several days? There's a lot of eating and there's a lot of drinking. And again, I believe Laban is very strategic and he wants his uh, potential son-in-law off his game. What happens? Well, we see that the feast is going on and Jacob is drinking and he's celebrating and he's merry and he's probably lightheaded because of the wine. And while nobody's looking, Laban takes his daughter Leah and brings her into the tent, to Jacob's tent. Laban decides he's going to pull the old switcheroo. Now, I have no idea what he said to his daughters because <laughs> he had to talk to both of them. I'm pretty sure he didn't ask his wife about this. I think this was one of those moments <laughs> where the dad goes, I got a really good idea and I got to act on this really quick before anybody finds out. And then he goes back to his tent. And he says, honey, you, guess what? And she says, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't do that. Oh, it's going to work. So I'm not sure how he did this, but I know he loved both of them equally. And I think what he said was, girls, just trust me. It's going to be okay. 
And perhaps they'd seen their dad operate long enough to go, well, dad's up to something, but in the end, he usually wins, so let's just let him go along. But I, I think about how that must have made Leah feel, as well as Rachel, and you can't, just kind of, your skin kind of starts to crawl a little bit, but Laban pulls the switcheroo. Maybe he said before the ceremony, hey, Jacob, how about you and me have a couple of friendly drinks here? Well, let's, let's kind of kiss and make up. And the wife has the veil over her face, and the darkness of the evening is now shrouding the festivities, and Jacob's drinking more and more wine at the reception. And friends, what I'm trying to draw a picture of is Jacob is now sheep to the slaughter. Laban's the true swindler in this story. Here's a guy who's a real pro. And he sets the deal up, and the cheater learns what it's like to be cheated. And then we come to verse 25 through verse 27, and the confrontation, which I call the fine print. In the morning, not that night, but in the morning, I don't even want to think about that part of it. Behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Which is actually technically his name. He has to use his name in that sentence, which I find absolutely phenomenal. Laban said, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete this week with this one. In other words, go on your honeymoon. Okay, and we will then give you the other. We'll give you Rachel also in return for serving me another seven years. Laban's playing the innocent guy. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did you misunderstand? Oh, Jacob, you didn't read the fine print. I, oh, I feel terrible. Guys, go get the contract. Uh, See, in our country, you got to marry the older one first. Oh, sure, you can have Rachel, no problem at all. But Jacob, I know what kind of man you are. I know that you would never want anything for free. So why don't we just, we'll, we'll just keep the deal the same. Another seven years. And by the way, after the honeymoon, you can have Rachel next week. Do you see how he's playing him for a fool? Wouldn't you love to have been, maybe you wouldn't, maybe I'm just sick. But wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that tent when Jacob woke up the next morning and just said, boy, I really can't see straight because that really looks like Leah. And then just be sitting outside that tent when he comes out of that tent. And I guarantee you where it says, where Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I guarantee you there was screaming and there was yelling and there was throwing dust in the air. This was a big commotion. And you can just see Laban sitting back and going, what a young fool he is. <laughs> Maybe he'll learn. Maybe this will do him some good. Son, you should have read the fine print. But now the tables are turned. And perhaps for the first time in his life, Jacob knows how Esau felt when he was swindled out of his birthright. Perhaps Jacob, for the first time ever, has imagined back to the tent where he entered a tent with fur on his arms, wearing his brother's clothes, deceiving his father in order to receive the blessing in an inappropriate manner. Perhaps now the shoe is on the other foot and Jacob's eyes are starting to wake up to what it's like not to be the conniver, not to be the swindler, not to be the cheat, but to be around somebody who lives in such a manner. What's the end result? Verses 28 to 30. The scoundrel is silenced. Jacob did so and and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Laban has, uh, has pressed his advantage. You want, Rachel, another seven years. What's Jacob's response? The great negotiator, the guy who always has something to say, is silenced. He knows he's created his own crisis. His response is simply to say, okay, 
I'll work another seven years. The deceiver is deceived. And in one week, he goes from singing these sappy love songs, Art Garfunkel love songs, to being married to a woman that, that he had no interest in, to, to being also in the same tent with a woman who he loves and thinks the world of. And both of them happen to be bringing a servant each with them who ultimately under the law of that land could be his concubines. He could be involved with them relationally. And now he went from a bachelor pad to four women in a tent about half the size of the stage. <laughs> that's not a good deal. <laughs> I don't care how you slice it. That, that, that's not a good deal. But he accepts it. You almost feel sorry for him. Almost. <laughs> He's an indentured servant to a crook for another seven years. Makes you feel kind of bad, except for the fact that you know everything about his past. And you almost are sitting here this morning feeling like, you know what, son? What goes around comes around. And wasn't that a good lesson for you to learn? But I think there's a more fundamental and more important question when it comes to application to you and to me. Because my question is, where's the ladder? <laughs> Remember the angels coming and going and God saying, I'm never going to be with you, or I'm always going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. The angels represent God's divine providence at work. Jacob, you're not going to misstep. Jacob, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you back to the land. Through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Where's the ladder? Where's God's providence? Where's the promise? I'll never leave you. I believe, although God's name is not mentioned in the verses we read this morning, that uh, the ladder's right where it's always been. It hasn't moved. God is active. God's providence is working in the life of Jacob. As I said at the outset of the sermon, God is both patient and active. And Jacob is about to enter God's school of hard knocks. And that's exactly what I believe Scripture is teaching us this morning, that God loves Jacob way too much to let him continue to be a liar, and a swindler, and a cheat. And it's going to be a very hard lesson. It's going to be a lesson that actually lasts for years. But God is knocking off the rough edges of Jacob's sin. Jacob will become Israel, which means prince of God. But the process means burning away the spiritual chaff and the spiritual impurities of Jacob's life because God loves his children. And he loves his children enough to discipline his children. Now, friends, discipline and punishment are not the same thing. Jesus was punished on the cross for your sins and for mine. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, Jesus took your punishment. Jesus was not disciplined on the cross. He was punished. He experienced the wrath of God so that moving forward, God could love his children fully. And what Jacob is experiencing is the discipline, the love of God. Just like a good parent wouldn't say to their child who ran out in the street, oh, that's okay, go run out in the street whenever you want to. No, there's going to be consequences. There might be a spanking. There might be a timeout. But you're going to discipline the one you love. And that's what God is doing. And so you ought not feel sorry for Jacob. You ought to rejoice in the fact that God loves a guy like this enough, cares enough about him to let him go through something like this in order to help him see God's grace and God's mercy and God's compassion. It'll be another 14 years before that comes full circle, but the process has now begun. What's the application for you and for me this morning? It's simply this. We're Jacob. We're the ones who have rough edges. We're the ones who get real comfortable with our sin. I should say I am. 
I love Jesus. I'm so thankful to have my sins forgiven. I love coming here on Sunday morning and singing for joy about the grace and the mercy of God. But there are six other days in the week when I can get relatively comfortable with my own sin. I can see it in your life. I can tell you about all your problems. But I think I'm a pretty good guy. I think there are a lot of moments when it's in the pain. It's in the struggle. It's maybe in dealing with somebody who's an unreasonable person that that we pray, God, get me out of this. God, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. I bet you Jacob was praying that prayer. Lord, what on earth just happened? I think God was saying, son, exactly what I planned happened. You're right where I want you because it's only here where you can really experience my grace. And it's only here where you can really look at the mirror of your own sin. We want ease and God desires Christ-likeness. Guess who's going to win in that confrontation? We want God to take away the pain, remove the bad people. And God says, they're my intended tools to bring you to repentance and to deepen your faith. I want to read for you just a couple of paragraphs out of Kent Hughes' commentary on this very subject because I think it can sum up better than I could this morning uh, the purpose of this text. So just uh, sit and listen to this for a moment and we're going to close with prayer. Was Jacob the father of the 12 tribes of Israel? Was God the God of Jacob? Yes. The divine ladder was there and the Lord was keeping him. The heavenly commerce was free and flowing. But it's also true that although Jacob was an elect son, he did not escape the consequences of his own sin. Far from being immune to discipline, God's children are often the object of his special discipline. The angel freighted ladder disciplines and exalts. God has brought the arch deceiver Laban into the life of the great patriarch deceiver so that Jacob's sin might be displayed before his eyes, that he might be cut to the heart. Jacob's nemesis and greatest antagonist was an instrument of God. The latter assured that it was so, and Jacob was going to change, not overnight, but over time, he would become Israel, the prince of God. Today, for all believers, the latter is presided over and administered by the ascended son of man. And the same Lord does the same thing for all his children. There's continual commerce between heaven and earth for you and for me. And like Jacob, we happily see it when everything is going well, but when life goes south, when our sins catch up with us and we're paying the piper, when hard times and hard people come into our lives, then the latter seems more remote. But the commerce is there, and if anything, it is more intense. Perhaps, as it was for Jacob, there are difficult people in our lives, Laban-type nemesis, harsh people, judgmental people, deceitful people, untruthful people, arrogant people, and we cry for relief. But it just may be, as Alan Ross has suggested, that through them we take a long, hard look at ourselves. It may be that some of those traits characterize us more than other people, and they may be a part of God's means of disciplining us. One thing is for sure, The commerce on behalf of our souls will never cease until we are with the Son of Man. And for this grace, we must bless his name. Let's pray.